Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Do you know a student getting ready to go to college? Or are you looking at going back to school yourself? The Woodward Hines Education Foundation and the Get to College program help more Mississippians get to and through college to get certificates and degrees that lead to meaningful employment. They offer free college planning advice, including hands-on FAFSA completion assistance through in-person or virtual appointments. Visit gettocollege.org to learn more. Support for MPB comes from the University of Mississippi School of Education, working to prepare the next generation of teachers, counselors, and educational leaders through online graduate degrees and hybrid doctoral programs. Details at education.olemiss.edu. Good morning. It's 8.30 on Tuesday, January 30th. I'm Karen Brown, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, find out how a budget shortfall could affect services for Mississippi children. The decision had to be made, what is the most important here, some of the programs that they were looking at, or the protection of these abused and neglected children. Then details on what some physicians say could happen if lawmakers stamp out certain state requirements of the State Department of Health. And after a conversation from the StoryCorps mobile tour, meet the award-winning Mississippi educator receiving national recognition. That's all coming up. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Mississippi lawmakers are working to address a budget deficit in one of the state's newest agencies. The State Department of Child Protection Services is nearly $40 million short for the current fiscal year. In 2015, the legislature voted to turn Child Protection Services into a standalone agency to comply with the Olivia Y lawsuit, in which a federal court found that the state had failed to adequately protect children in its custody. Some say the error comes as a surprise, though the agency has been preparing to separate from the Department of Human Services for nearly two years. Others question how it could affect the state's children. Jess Dickinson is commissioner of CPS. He tells us the budget was not a problem when the agency was a branch within DHS. When I got here September the 18th, I began to look at the rest of the fiscal year and the CPS budget And it was clear that the dedicated federal funds and appropriation were not going to be sufficient. In other words, the federal funds we knew we were going to receive uh, with the state accounting system, there was no simple way for us to determine exactly what the expected expenditures were going to be. Uh, Normally, you can, for any business... They can go into a computer system and they can look at their budget and they can see where they are and how much they have left to spend. That's very difficult to do with governmental accounting as it was applied in this agency. And so my chief of staff and I looked through the books 
looked through all the contracts that we had and the employees that we had in the field and all of our expected expenditures, and we pulled together a line-item budget that got us very, very close to what our obligations were for the rest of the fiscal year. When we compared our obligations with expected federal funds and the balance of our appropriation from the legislature, we knew that we were in the range of $50 million short. And so DHS had assisted CPS department with its expenditures through federal funds that it obtained from other sources. And so they could use the combined expenditures of both agencies. Both agencies got about $150 million in state appropriation, and they could use that entire $150 million in various ways to draw down federal funds. So when I realized we had a substantial shortfall in our expected revenues that I could count on, in other words, that I knew I was going to get, I contacted John Davis, who was the executive director of DHS, and asked him about funds for CPS so that I could find out if I had other revenues to pay those expenses. Mr. Davis let me know that since the departments had begun the two-year separation process, that that process was over because they were becoming separate agencies. And by the end of June 2018, this coming June, the law required that we become completely separated. Is this shortfall also a detriment to DHS? It would have been had we not noticed this problem and immediately attempted to solve it. You see, right now today, we are still a sub-agency of DHS. The complete separation doesn't take place statutorily it doesn't take place until the end of June, the end of this fiscal year. And so part of what had already happened was budgets had been separated. They weren't required to be, they just had been because we were becoming separate. You couldn't just automatically on June the 30th, we couldn't just suddenly separate. That's a long and difficult process. Can we go back? Why did Governor Bryant think it was important to have DPS as its own entity? Well, I've I've heard numerous news accounts that attributes this to Governor Bryant's idea and his plan, but what actually happened was during the course of the Olivia Wilde litigation, which has been ongoing for almost 14 years, um, it was the plaintiff's counsel in the litigation that became concerned that because CPS was part of the Department of Human Services that it was not getting the individual attention that it needed. Uh, if a CPS caseworker had a problem with their computer and with their internet access, they had to go to the Department of Human Services IT department to get it fixed. Well, the plaintiff's counsel viewed that as making it difficult for CPS workers to get priority because this is what I've, I've come to understand. I wasn't here, but what I've come to understand is that they did not want CPS workers to have to stand in line. They wanted them to go directly to their own IT department and their own human resources department and their own budgeting department and be first in line. And so they began this demand that they separate. The part that the governor played was that as the litigation progressed, this settlement agreement was reached that included responses to the plaintiff's demand that CPS become a separate agency, and the governor agreed to that. This is not something that 
as I understand it, that the governor went out and decided, I think I'll just make CPS a separate agency. That didn't how it happened. Does the legislature have to appropriate $40 million to your agency to fix this? No, we have worked on a fix for this, and it involves a number of components, the main one being that if the legislature provides us $12 million in a deficit appropriation, we have recombined the account. And so we worked with the Department of Human Services and Executive Director Davis to reattach or to recombine those accounts so that now our state fund expenditures will also qualify. So if the legislature gives us the $12 million appropriation, DHS can take that $12 million and turn it into $24 million because they'll use it to match federal funds they can draw down. I can't do it. They can. And so we have cut some contracts and gone through the entire line item budget over here, and we've cut everything that we can cut to reduce that budget deficit as much as we can. And DHS, in addition to taking our $12 million and turning it into $24 million, they are also going to provide us a substantial amount of federal funds in the range of $22 million or $23 million that they are able to direct to us that they would have directed to other programs. And so the decision had to be made, what is the most important here in terms of funding for this fiscal year, some of the programs that they were looking at, or the protection of these abused and neglected children. And, of course, the answer to that became these children. And so they're going to redirect that money to us. You have your work cut out for you. Justice Jess Dickinson is the commissioner of the Mississippi Child Protection Services. Justice Dickinson, thank you so much for explaining that and for being with us today. Thank you so much. It remains unclear where the discrepancy originated. Coming up, details on what some physicians say could happen if lawmakers remove certain state requirements of the State Department of Health. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. It's still January of 2018. Time to get organized for the new year. Is this the year you're going to make a budget? Where do you keep your pay stubs? Do you know when automated bills come out of your checking account? On Money Talks, host Kevin Farrell and finance expert Ryder Taft will talk about these organization tips and take your personal finance questions. Today at 9 a.m. on MPB Think Radio and on the Internet at mpbonline.org. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. A group of community doctors hope legislators will scratch a certification requirement. They feel it's hindering them from providing services in rural areas. MPB's Ashley Norwood reports. A group of pediatric medical specialists is asking legislators to loosen the requirement that they obtain a certificate of need for outpatient surgery centers. The doctors are with the Mississippi Center for Advanced Medicine Clinics across the state. In order for them to create a new center or purchase specialized medical equipment, the facility must apply for a certificate and receive approval from the Mississippi State Department of Health. Dr. Roy Rodriguez says loosening the certificate process will mean more surgical facilities facilities in rural areas. They can be seen on the same day, have their surgery, and then go home. So it's less wasting time in the sense of services. They will not miss as many days of school or work for the parents either. So definitely allowing opening 
having surgical centers will be the, the best idea ever. Dr. Spencer Sullivan is CEO of the Mississippi Center for Advanced Medicine. He says the certification process is intimidating. It's estimated that the CUN process can cost up to $100,000 in attorney's fees and up to six months to review. Most physicians do not have the time, the money, or the resources to succeed this process, which quite honestly is how it is designed. He says tearing apart certification rules that affect centers like his could help decrease the shortage of doctors in the state. According to the Mississippi State Department of Health's website, its certificate of need process is necessary to plan the state's health facilities based on the need for services, location, and size. The department says it is designed to increase accessibility and quality of health care across the state. Ashley Norwood, MPB News. Coming up, meet the award-winning Mississippi educator receiving national recognition. But first, it's a conversation from the StoryCorps mobile tour. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. From the Capitol steps to your front door, MPB News covers the state like no one else. Our team of award-winning journalists keeps you informed on the news affecting your life. MPB News, online at mpbonline.org and on MPB Think Radio. Hal Kassoff's upbringing in post-war New York couldn't have been more different than what people experienced here in Mississippi. Kassoff grew up in a mostly Jewish neighborhood in the Bronx, never meeting a Protestant until his college years. He shared the story of his upbringing with his daughter, Debbie, in this Mississippi stop on the StoryCorps mobile tour. One of the ironies of growing up in the Bronx is you're part of the most cosmopolitan city in the country, arguably the world, and yet it was a very provincial upbringing. I was in my 20s before I ventured beyond uh, New York, New Jersey, and Connecticut. Um, growing up in the Bronx, uh, was uh, it was a, an ocean, a sea of uh, five-story apartment buildings. Those that were in the more affluent neighborhoods had an elevator. <laughs> Ours didn't. We were on the ground floor. We didn't have a telephone in the house until an older sister five years old, and decided that taking calls from boyfriends in a public phone outside in the hallway was not the best deal. So we got a telephone, and then we got a television. We used to listen to the radio. So much of life existed on the streets. People in good weather would sit outside, and we'd play stickball and just all sorts of Bronx games. It was a very Jewish neighborhood, I would say 95% Jews, although we knew from an early age that while we were a majority in our neighborhood, Jews were a minority. So that was kind of ingrained in us. A quick aside, I, I always tell this story that the only non-Jews in our neighborhood were Catholic, Irish, or Italian. And I'd never met a wasp, a white Anglo-Saxon <laughs> Protestant, until I was in college and didn't even know they were in the majority in the Christian world. So that just shows how provincial we were. But it was it was a wonderful upbringing because that was our world. There's a lot of warmth, a lot of connection to relatives. So let's back up and mm -hmm. um, why don't you tell me the names of your parents and your sister? Like who was in your family? Uh, my mother's name was uh, Vera. Uh, her Yiddish name was Vishna and her maiden name was Jaffe. She was born in Dvinsk in Latvia and then lived in Riga for a while, and then moved to the United States. She was actually in her 
20s, I think, early 20s when she moved here. My father's name was Shmuel, and uh, his name in Poland was Kuchewski or Kanzuski, and it got anglicized. And actually, not at Ellis Island. It got anglicized uh, when he took out his citizenship mm-hmm. papers in the United States. And he was born in Vilnius, uh, or Vilna in, Lat- in Lithuania. But he wasn't known as Shmuel. No. By the time in I fact, came along, he anyway. was he was early known as Sam, and huh. then his legal name uh, was became Stanley. So Stanley Kassoff. They had a whirlwind courtship. Um, Wasn't it just a few weeks? It was like uh, in two months they were they were married. Oh. Yeah, I think in a few weeks they decided they were going to get married, which was unusual. Well, my father lived alone. I mean, he uh, had a very interesting life. Uh, and and was looking for companionship. And uh, my mother, I mean, all his life, he was grateful for the family life that he got from my mom. And how old were your parents when when they got married? Well, age was a bit of a mystery because uh, it turns out we found out after my mother passed away, she was a wee bit older than she said. She was she, they always said they were both born in the same year, 1909, mm-hmm. and the records yeah. seem to show that she was born actually in 1904, and my father in 1908, so she was four years older. I should also mention our apartment, one bedroom for four people, and it was uh, tight. <laughs> we didn't have a car. By the way, the, the streets were parked with cars left and right, but we didn't have a car. And my whole interest in highway, you mentioned my career in mm-hmm. highways. I had this uh, desire. The one thing I felt denied growing up is um, I had this desire to see the rest of the country mm-hmm. and uh, get out in the open road. That was the post-World War II mm-hmm. era. And people were buying cars and moving to the suburbs and seeing the country. And we were sort of confined if I wanted to get anywhere. I had to walk or take a bus or take the train. To hear more of our conversations from the StoryCorps mobile tour, go to mpbonline.org. The StoryCorps mobile tour visited Mississippi through a partnership with the Mississippi Humanities Council, the MPB Foundation, and Mississippi Public Broadcasting. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. This year, one Mississippian is celebrating national attention as a top educator. Past Christiane High School's principal, Robin Killebrew, is a 2018 recipient of the Milken Award. Film has the Oscar, music has the Grammy, and the Milken Family Foundation offers the Milken Educator Awards to the nation's top educators. They say teachers are the true unsung heroes on the front lines of shaping the future. During an all-school assembly, State Superintendent of Education Dr. Carrie Wright and Milken Educator Awards Senior Vice President Dr. Jane Foley recognize the educator as a model for the state and nation. Principal Killebrew tells us she is honored and surprised. Well, we're a 4A high school. We have about 640 kids. It's a great school. Um, we're usually ranked in the top 10 academically. Uh, this past year, we um, were the fourth in the state with our ACT scores. So it was something that we were real proud of. And we were number one on the coast with those ACT scores. U.S. News and World Report, we've been um, awarded the silver medal for the last several years. So, again, that's a, that's another 
area that we're proud of, and that's based on um, advanced placement classes, dual credit classes, ACT scores, and academic achievement. Now, you have a 90% graduation rate. You have, as you said, rising test scores and all these accolades. Why? What's special about Path Christian High School? I think it starts with the culture here. Um, we're a Jostens Renaissance School, which celebrates uh, students on their um, achievements with regard to academics, attendance, and discipline. Um, it's something that we're real proud of. And I think as far as the 90% graduation rate goes, I think it's mainly due to um, just positive relationships with kids. You know, our faculty does a a phenomenal job um, building relationships with students and um, in carrying out our mission and vision with regard to that. Sometimes management staff to the teachers and other staff and then to the students, there's a bit of a disconnect. It sounds like that is not the case with your high school. It's not. Um, one of the things that we do at Past Christian that I think is um, pretty phenomenal is we do uh, what's called Save One Student. Um, each of our faculty members adopts anywhere from one to three students. We call it our SOS program. And that stu- that teacher is basically that student's advocate for the entire year. Um, the person that the student can go to, to reach out to, um, ask questions, um, you know, if they just need someone to talk to. So we really pride ourselves in building relationships with kids. You've said that every student needs something different. How are you able to provide that? One of the things that we do is we have class meetings often and we look at community service projects so um, we really try to pride ourselves in just getting to know the kids individually and we're not that big so it works out pretty good. How do you raise the bar for your students? I would assume you have to have them work towards something. You know you have to have a game plan. Um, we have something called connections here at the high school that we run at 9:30. Uh, we usually do it about every other week or sometimes once a month and we basically it's almost like a practice plan with you know like if a coach was a basketball coach or something and we just let the kids know where we are where we stand and what our goals are and what we need to do to reach that so every teacher has what we call a connections classroom and uh, those kids go and they visit that teacher like I said every other week or once a month and we have it built in our schedule and we just discuss what the game plan is. So it's important that our kids know what our vision is, you know, to be successful. Dr. Kellebrew, are there other schools in Mississippi that are reaching out to you for ideas or guidance? We do. We have several schools that come and visit us. Um, This year alone, we've probably had about four that have stopped in, and we love having visitors. And I tell them all the time, when you come to see us, we're going to be asking you questions as well because, you know, we're always trying to learn from others as well. You were surprised um, at a an assembly at school? I was. Um, I did know that we were having an assembly because I orchestrated the assembly and helped set up <laughs> and everything. But I thought that the assembly was um, – I, I knew that Dr. Carrie Wright was coming and that she was going to um, be speaking, and I just thought that she was going to recognize our high school on, or our, and our school district on the achievements that we've reached over the years. Uh, she's been here before. She she visited us about two years ago. So I just thought, you know, hey, she's coming back again. You know, what a great honor. You know, she's going to recognize the, the staff and the, the students. But uh, it sort of took a turn about halfway through the program, and uh, Dr. Jane Foley was here, and uh she started discussing the Milken Award, and 
when she was speaking the whole time she was describing what the award was and what it was all about and then she started talking about a you know a faculty member at the school is about to receive this and the whole time I was just looking around you know at all my <laughs> faculty members going okay it could be you it could be you it could be you and then all of a sudden you know when she said my name I was just I was floored. What does this award mean to you individually? Well, first of all, I, you know, it was definitely an honor. I was totally shocked and surprised. I had no idea, you know, that, that I was receiving this award. It's still sinking in. I mean, it really is special. You know, um, this this profession is, is very rewarding in so many ways, um, you know, just touching kids' lives and, you know, just being a part of, of, of so many. But I'm very humbled by it. Um, but it, it means a lot to me. Uh, my mom is in her 43rd year of teaching, and, you know, I, I see how hard she works. And um, it just means a lot that someone would see, you know, the work that we're doing here and, and uh, recognize it. Dr. Robin Killebrew, congratulations. You do Mississippi proud, and thank you for being with us. Thank you so much. I appreciate it more than you know. Along with the trophy, Killebrew also gets a $25,000 award. Stay tuned to MPB Think Radio for a full slate of Mississippi-based programs all morning long. Coming up at 9 o'clock, it's Money Talks. Then at 10 o'clock, it's In Legal Terms. And at 11 o'clock, stay tuned for Southern Remedies, Relatively Speaking. And tonight, don't miss the President's State of the Union address. Governor Phil Bryant says he's looking forward to hearing President Donald Trump speak. I'm looking forward to him doing somewhat of a victory lap on that first year. If you look at the economy, look at the number of jobs, uh, I think if you look at what uh, he's done securing our border, even without a wall, some 60, 65 percent down of illegal immigration crossing. You can hear the president's speech tonight on MPB Think Radio. Join us again tomorrow morning at 830 on MPB Think Radio for Mississippi Edition. Support for MPB comes from the University of Mississippi School of Education, working to prepare the next generation of teachers, counselors, and educational leaders through online graduate degrees and hybrid doctoral programs. Details at education.olemiss.edu.